Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. All right, kids ages uh, three through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. It's, it's uh, printed for you in your order of worship right there. If you don't own a Bible, we've got a bunch on the back table. That, those are for you. Grab one on your way out or right now. Uh, I know that may be a little awkward. If it's not awkward for you, great. Go grab one. Good to have it in front of you. Um, so you know that I'm not making this stuff up because that's not going to help anybody, right? So for two weeks, we have talked about the fact here in this church that this book of the New Testament, that book of Philippians is going to press on us and it's going to do so whether we're checking out Christianity for the first time. Some of you are, uh, welcome. You're, you're more than welcome here. Um, or have, or have been Christians for a long time and it's going to press on us all on what we think being a Christian, what we think being a part of a church is about. Last week we talked about partnership, how every Christian is in the gospel business. That that probably scared you, right? Because that asked something of us. This week we look at the fact that this business moves forward through surprising ways. So if you have your place, we're in Philippians 1. Our habit here is to stand in honor of God's word as we hear it read before the sermon. We're going to be reading verses 12 to 18 in chapter 1. Friends, let's remember as we turn here that this is, this is God's word. This is not just something that we decided one day, hey, let's go with this book uh, uh, instead of another, or let's, uh, let's pick these books and not some others. This is God's word. We hear the shepherd's voice in it. Uh, we recognize it, and, and this word lays claim on us. So let's hear it in that way. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me really has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim, proclaim, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. This is God's word given so that we could flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, that's what we ask for during this time. We ask that you might flourish us. We were made for you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And I, if, if, if my friends here this morning are anything like me, and I think we're all the same, no matter where we are, in our relationship with Jesus, we need to find our rest in you this morning. Our hearts are busy with many things. But we pray, Lord, that you would quiet them by your spirit. Open our ears to hear you, our eyes to see you, and our hearts to receive you. And speak, Lord, now. For your servants are listening. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So if, if you're a member here at Holy Cross or even uh, someone who comes a lot, you probably know that 
uh, I tend to go out of my way to speak to the concerns and doubts of those who aren't Christians, like those who aren't part of, uh, of, of this church. And that is, that's because the Bible talks a lot about the fact that the church exists for, for two people, for God and then for others, right? The church is actually, we're not here for ourselves. We're supposed to be here for others. Uh, and so if you have questions about that philosophically, you can come talk to me more about that if you want. But what I want to say today, though, is that today, that's not the case. Today we're going to be, it's a little bit of an in-house conversation. So if you're here this morning and you're visiting or you're checking out Christianity, you're in for a treat because you get to listen in on an in-house conversation and at the end of the day, be able to walk away and go, I, I, don't, I don't agree with any of that. I don't believe any of that stuff. That sounds crazy. And there isn't much that we could really argue with you on that. Okay? So, congratulations. And that's because today we, we are looking at this passage that talks a lot about how the gospel, when I say the gospel, I mean the central message of Christianity advances. And it advances through circumstances that we wouldn't expect and through motives that are less than pure. Ultimately, this shouldn't surprise us, but it does. It shouldn't surprise us because the gospel is about a Savior who came to deal with our sin by bearing the penalty for it on a Roman cross. And that gospel is communicated by broken people like me, who couldn't buy a pure motive even if I had won Powerball this week. Okay? So we're going to look at this passage this morning in in two ways, and there's an outline if that's helpful for you, it's in your bulletin. We're going to look at advancing through circumstances and advancing through motives. Okay, really simple. Circumstances and motives. Let's look first at the circumstances. Look at what's happened in verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, here's the problem when he says that. He assumes you know what has happened. And you don't. Of course you don't. He doesn't tell us. He's assuming that the Philippians would know what he's talking about. So let me give a little background if I can. I said a couple of weeks ago that Paul, you remember Paul, he's, he's the writer of like almost like half of the New Testament, uh, but that Paul began his rather notorious career as being violently anti-Christian. Not just anti-Christian, because there's lots of folks who are not real big on Christianity, uh, but I mean like violently anti-Christian, like take you out of your house, beat you, throw you in jail type anti-Christian. And if you really got on his nerves, he'll be throw you in a circle of people, hand them a bunch of stones and sit back and watch while they start chucking them. Okay? That's Paul. And the story is basically that he becomes a Christian while all in his way to, to arrest Christians for being Christian. And then he starts publicly sharing his faith. And, and as he does that, that upsets two groups of people, right? You can imagine these two groups of people. There are those whom, who are not Christians, who thought he was their guy. And all of a sudden they're mad, like, what, what are you doing? What are you, you turned on us. And then he also is upsetting Christians because they're like, what are you doing? Like, who do who you think you're fooling? I, you're wanting me to become public and you're going to throw me in jail. I, they don't know if they should trust him. And so Paul ends up spending about 14 years out of the limelight for various reasons, one of which is most assuredly because of his past. And after that time, though, he becomes a church planter. And if that's new language to you, that's what we call someone who starts new churches. So he becomes a church planter throughout the Mediterranean. And eventually, this church planting gets him into trouble. Paul is writing this letter, the letter of Philippians, while he is in jail. That's right, he's in jail. He's doing time in Rome. So when he says what has happened, what he means is getting thrown into prison. That sounds great, right? I mean, 
if you come from a background like mine, not every one of you do, but like if you come from a background like mine, there is very little you can think of that might disqualify you more to speak on religion, to speak on matters of faith, to do God talk than doing time, right? And, and to be saying it from jail. Like it, but, but regardless of even that, maybe that's not your background, think with me. Paul's goal in life after, this, after those 14 years, his goal in life was to go from city to city in the Roman world preach the gospel of Jesus and see new churches spring up because of that. What can sabotage that worse than being in prison in Rome? <laughs> like Nothing, right? Here's the strange part, though. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, in spite of what has happened to me, the gospel has advanced. But instead he says, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. In other words, the gospel, the central message of Christianity, hasn't gone forward in spite of the fact that he's in prison. It has gone forward because of the fact that he's in prison. His circumstances are actually advancing it. Think on that for a minute. If you're laying out a list of the top ten things that's going to derail church planting in Boston, having your church planter uh, in the in the clink in Atlanta is probably at the top of your list, right? Like, if you're, if you're thinking, like, what is going to keep any churches from being planted in this area? It's going to be, well, this dude, the dude who's supposed to plant them is actually in jail somewhere else. What Paul is saying, though, is that this circumstance is actually doing the, ex- the exact opposite. And so here's what's resulted. Look down at verses 13 to 14. He says, It's served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So this is one of the verses that scholars will look to and say, this tells us the most clearly that Paul's actually in Rome. He's in jail in Rome. Paul's in jail in a lot of places. I know that's really blowing the tops off of most of your images of church leadership. But he was in jail in a lot of places, but he happened to be in Rome. So when, when, uh, when he's talking about the imperial guard, the word is praetorian. That's a, that's a word that you would get from Latin. It's not Greek. It's a Latin word. And, and what he's talking about there, the praetorian are Caesar's personal bodyguard. They're like his elite, elite. It's the secret service. It's Caesar's secret service, right? Now, you may be like, Seriously? Like, how's he getting in with the secrets? I, I, I would say, yeah, yes, he is. But you have to remember, there were like 9,000 of these guys. Like, in the ancient world, you tend to need a very large security force because people didn't come at you with like one or two guys. They came at you with an army. So there's a very large security force. It's not a small group. But the point is this. We know that Paul had been falsely accused of some things by Jewish leaders. But he was a Roman citizen, which gave him certain rights. So as he's in jail, he, he throws out the call that he wants to appeal his case to Caesar, which any Roman citizen could do. In other words, you could be, you could be uh, accused of a petty crime, and you say, I want Caesar to hear this, and be like, what choice do we have? Then you haul him off to Rome. And so more than likely, Paul is writing this while he's waiting for his case to be heard. And so in that case, he has access to these guys. Now, maybe not all 9,000 of them. He may be speaking in a little bit of hyperbole, uh, but, but he has access to a lot of them. So Paul is saying basically this. Because I'm in chains, because I'm in prison, these guys, these guys who would never have heard the gospel, they are getting to hear the gospel. So that's part of what has happened. But there's more. Keep reading. He says, not only that, he says, and many of the brothers in the Lord have been convinced convinced by my chains more boldly to speak the word without fear. Okay, now this is weird, so listen with me. 
On the one hand, Paul is saying, what has happened? My circumstances have allowed people to hear the gospel who never would have. On the other hand, he's saying that uh, this imprisonment has actually emboldened others to preach without fear. Which is completely counterintuitive. I mean, think with me. Let's say tomorrow someone comes knocking on the door like Reverend Gilmartin, which the only person who's ever going to call me Reverend Gilmartin is probably going to have a badge. So, Reverend Gilmartin, um, we're going to need to bring you in for what you said yesterday. And they're hauling me off, perp walk, all that stuff. And all of a sudden, the rest of you are like, dude, that's awesome. Let's go preach more. Like, that's not going to happen, right? That is weird. So Paul gets thrown into prison, but what has happened is not what we would expect. We would expect that Paul's imprisonment would then be the last that we would hear of this whole gospel thing. The last that we would hear of Christianity in the Roman world. But instead, Paul is saying that Christianity is spreading. It is spreading to those who would never have heard it, to Caesar's own bodyguard. What we're going to hear later in the letter is not just to Caesar's bodyguard, but to his household. Hmm. And more people are preaching with verve than ever before. So the gospel is advancing through circumstances. Circumstances we might think are crazy, but this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because of what we see God using throughout the Bible. Let's look at what God uses. Remember what I said a minute ago that Paul said, he's not saying this this is happening in spite of his circumstances. He's happening because of his circumstances. Let me solidify that really quick. Look down at verse 16. You've got your Bibles out in front of you. The ESV says this, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Here's how Paul's looking at a situation. This situation is not something that happened to him. This situation is something that God has ordained for him. It's not something that's happening to him. It's something that God has ordained for him. That word put here, right? I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That's a military term in Greek. It's normally used for uh, people who are stationed at a post. I've been stationed here. I am, I am uh, I'm put on orders. Paul is saying that this that is happening right now is exactly what God intended, and it is working out exactly as God wants. And this should make sense if we're taking an honest look at the gospel. Again, remember, we're, most of us in this room probably are Christian self-identifying, so, so we're having an in-house conversation. If we're, if we're being honest and taking an honest look at the gospel, this should make sense. Think with me. You and I are are helpless, right? We believe this, that we're utterly broken, uh, utterly helpless to get ourselves right before God, right? Paul says in another place that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, not some, but all. Sin is personal betrayal. Scriptures tell us that hell is what we earn by it. So how does God deal with that? How would we? How would we deal with that? Let's say, you didn't just win the Powerball this week. Let's say you got God's hat for a little while. Boop. How would you deal with that? It's hard to answer, right? Let me tell you how I don't think we would do it. I don't think we would do it by taking a human nature, living perfectly, and then dying to bear hell for guilty people. I really doubt we would do that. But it's not just the story of Jesus that would, that would make sense of this either. Think about, some of you know the story of Joseph, right? Joseph, Old Testament. Dude's got 11 brothers. Um, he's not the youngest, but he is kind of the most loved He likes to rub his brother's noses in it. Uh, And so what they do is they jump him in the desert, sell him to slaves, or sell him to slavers. And then they tell Pops that he got eaten by wolves. Seriously, like, I'm not making this up. You can go read about it. It's in Genesis. So he he tells them, like, they they tell Pops, they tell Jacob, he got eaten by wolves. So through a crazy set of circumstances, he ends up not just okay. He ends up being the chief of staff of 
Egypt, right? Like one below Pharaoh. Like there's king of Egypt, then there's Joseph. And, and when, when a famine hits the entire Middle East, Joseph had actually planned for it. Again, crazy circumstances. You can read more about it. And, and so he planned for it so that Egypt would be okay. And not just Egypt, the rest of the world. So that his brothers eventually end up coming to him, not knowing it's him, they come to him to get food because there, there's a famine. And when he reveals himself to them, they freak out. Of course they freak out. They sold him as a slave and then told Pops he got eaten by wolves. So they freak out and he says, get this, he says, get this. Don't be afraid. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Friends, listen. God is sovereign. <laughs> we hate that. I know we hate that, but the idea is clear. The idea is throughout the Bible, and it's very clear. Joseph's brothers didn't kick God off his throne one day and say, okay, well, God, I know you had a plan, but now we're in charge and we're doing this. And, 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 and neither did Caesar, right? Even though, from our perspective, it may have looked like it. God works because of our circumstances, not in spite of them. So let me ask you something, Christians. What are the circumstances that you are in right now, which you are convinced God cannot use? Like, do you think your life is just way too whack for God to ever use you? To ever speak through you? To ever use you in the lives of other people? Do you think uh, your marriage is too broken? Your job situation too volatile? Tell me, what, what can't God use to see the gospel advance in your life and in the lives of those around you? That's a fair question, right? What can't God use? What are you like, no, I know you're God and all, but this is too much for you, bro. Like, the darkest moment of human history was when the Son of God hung on a Roman cross. And his followers looked and said, God cannot be in this. But without Jesus hanging on that cross, we have no hope. Right? God didn't work in spite of the cross. God worked because of it. We aren't rescued from our sins in spite of the cross. We are rescued because of it, because of that circumstance that looked so dire. And God has not changed the way he works. Now, some of you are like, why do it like that? Look, I, I can't answer that infallibly. I wish I could. I think I'd be making way more money. But, if I, but here, here, let me give you two likely reasons. Why, did, why would God do things like that? One, because none of us would have thought of it. Which means that we would end up going like, okay, that's not the way I would do it. Who, who is this guy? He shows his wisdom is greater than ours. And then the second thing, because when things look bleakest, you and I have no hope of taking credit for it, do we? So he gets all the glory. So the gospel advances through circumstances, but it also advances through motives. Look down at verses 15 to 17. Paul's been talking about more people sharing their faith because he's locked up. And he says this, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. All right, stop there. Paul's saying, look, all of these folks, all of these, he calls them brothers in the Lord, by the way. All of these brothers in the Lord are sharing the gospel. They're preaching. Some are preaching because they love me and are continuing my work. Others are preaching Christ to increase their situation and to hurt mine. Now, the good motives probably make sense to us, right? I mean, we kind of get that. But let's look at the bad ones for a second. Why would preaching the gospel be done out of selfish ambition? <laughs> if you've been a Christian any amount of time, at least internally, you should be chuckling right now. 
Because, dude, Christians are the worst with this. We are the worst. Think about it. We love to adhere ourselves to people and then claim our identity, even as Christians, as attached to that person, that name. Right? We have entire theological traditions named things like Calvinism, of which we are a part. Calvinism, that's named after a dude. Arminianism, also named after a dude. Mennonite, named after a dude. Lutheran, right? Named after a dude. Like, these are all people. And then, and then, you know, it goes beyond that. Like, Methodism started by John and Charles Wesley, two guys. And then, and then that's just history. And then, of course, you have in the Bible itself, Paul reach, gets to the, the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth is divided in all these ways because some are like, Apollos is my dude. And others are like, no, no, Paul's my guy. And there's like, Peter. And then you got to like, well, y'all are nothing. I got Christ. Like, they're all like split up because of this. And then you got today where we love our podcasts and we listen to certain people and we're like, I'm all about that guy. I'm in his camp. That's how I identify myself. We have pastors, believe, we have preachers, friends, friends, with brands and they got their own PR guys. Like, Paul is hitting this. He's saying, you have some guys who are seeing that I am in jail and they're looking at it as an opportunity for their own brand to increase. And what's more, some of these dudes are apparently so jealous of Paul, they are hoping that to continue to preach will keep stirring up the Romans to to hold him longer and keep the heat off of them. Here's the real kicker. Oh, and this, some of y'all, look, some of us in this room are the good boys and girls, right? And so as good boys and girls, we're thinking, thinking, yeah, I know, those folks, God hates those people and da-da-da-da. Here's the kicker. Paul calls them He says that all of these folks are preaching Christ. He calls them brothers in the Lord. In other words, these are not heretics. They are actually proclaiming the gospel. They are just doing it out of selfish ambition. This hits at something I need to make clear for you and and for me, honestly. Being a minister of the gospel does not graduate you from being human. Right? Right? That should be like, yeah, but no, 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 listen to me. Because churches and pastors, and maybe you've been in one like this in the past, they conspire together to promote this lie that that somehow that dude up front, he's up here, the rest of us are down here, because if he's up here, then maybe he can help me because I'm stuck. Listen to me and listen to me very clearly. There are no super Christians. None. And that means me too. Nobody graduates from the realm of human. There is nothing wrong with you that isn't wrong with me. Nothing. It may look different, it may rear its head differently, but I am broken and in need of grace every bit, if not more. And oftentimes I think more because that seems to be the way God works than you. So motives are going to mess things up, right? Because they got, they got bad motives. Uh, wrong. Look down at verse 18. Paul says this. What then? That's another way of saying, so what? So what? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, can we just admit for a second that sometimes this dude is so bizarre we cannot relate to him? This is one of those times. He's like, some people are preaching what they're doing. Some people are doing what they're doing to hurt me. But I'm okay with that. Because I like what they're doing. What? 
That is bizarre. That's beyond bizarre. He has just admitted that some guys are out there preaching to promote themselves and hurt him. And he says, great, they're preaching Christ. That's all that matters. So let me clarify something again. Whatever is messed up about these guys, men, women probably as well, uh, these people preaching, Paul is happy about the content that they're preaching. Now, he's not always happy about the content, right? So let's be, let's be really clear here. This isn't like um, uh, sloppy agape, like mushy, mushy Christian love stuff where it's like, well, whatever you're doing, as long as you're doing it for the Lord. No, 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 no. Paul gets really up in the face of people who preach the content that he says is not a gospel at all, right? Because some of you are here for our series in Galatians, and like that entire book is Paul going, those guys preach something that's not the gospel, and he says this, I know our Bibles clean it up, but he says this, if anyone preaches a gospel that's not the same as what I heard, they can go to hell. For real, it's in the Bible. I didn't just make that up. That's not just me trying to be shocking. He says that. In Galatians, you have dudes coming to town preaching that you earn your way to God. That if you follow the right rules, do the right ceremonies, you can get your way to God. And Paul says that, if you preach that, you need to be condemned. In other words, to hell. Like, literally go there. It's not, he means that. But here, guys are messed up. They're preaching out of selfish ambition, but their message is right. And Paul says, great. This is key, so we have to grasp this, right? There is no such thing as the perfect messenger of the gospel. But there is a such thing as a false gospel. There's no such thing as a perfect messenger of the gospel, but there is such a thing as a false gospel. There are people today preaching a false gospel out of, or uh, preaching a false gospel out of selfish ambition too, right? That's, that, that seems to make more sense to us. They, they preach self-help. They preach clean yourself up with some of these new rules from God. Or with some feel-good, warm, fuzzy from God. And oh, by the way, you can give online to my ministry right now. Paul says this is a false gospel. The gospel is that you and I are messed up beyond imagining. That we are guilty before God. That we are in bondage to our sin and alienated from the God we were made for. It does not shrink at that truth. And if there is anything, anyone preaching something that claims to be Christian that shrinks away from that truth, that is not Christian any longer. But at the same time, the gospel also declares that God didn't leave us there, but became flesh in Jesus to live the life we couldn't and die to bear our guilt. It declares that God saw us in our brokenness, saw us in our weakness, and when we were far from him, and not just far from him, but happy about being far from him, and came to rescue us. That is the gospel. It is that God has finally answered his promise to rescue us, to restore us to himself. The gospel is not that you can be rich, have your best life now, or get over your peccadilloes. It is about you and me being reconciled to God and receiving his finished work. And Paul says, as long as that is what is preached, I'm cool. We're good. I don't care who gets the credit. The question is, how, right? Maybe it's just me because I do this week in and week out and I struggle with my own motivations, but my guess is that you would have similar feelings. Like, how does someone get that self-forgetful? It's just like, I don't really, I don't really care who gets the credit. As long as it's happening, we're good. To me, this sounds bizarre. Maybe I'm the only one that thinks so. I don't think so, though. Uh, I, I doubt it. 
Paul doesn't care about his own situation. He doesn't care about his own reputation. He cares only whether the gospel is being preached. How do you get there? Okay, how do you get there? That should be the question that we're asking. Let me suggest something. Because for many of us in this room, not all of us, some of you have different things that you struggle with, but for many of us in this room, reputation is king, right? Some of that has to do with, with our um, particular, the, the demographic, that's the, the majority demographic is represented in this room. Uh, some of it has to do with just the way in which we, our culture kind of sees success and the ways of, of kind of upward mobility as king. But reputation for many of us is king. And that's because we think that reputation makes us somebody, right? That, that reputation uh, gives us value, proves our worth. So what, here, here's the thing. Uh, what we're looking for isn't wrong. It's not wrong to be somebody. It's not wrong to, to look for worth and for value. It's not even wrong to want to be right. <laughs> it's not a what, it's a where. It's not what we're looking for, it's where we're looking for it. And so if that's you, if, if, if losing your reputation is the worst fate you can imagine, let me ask you something. How much of a good reputation is enough? How much? How many people thinking that you, all your stuff shines real nice, that everything you do is art, that they're the ones that they, that you're the one that they want to go to if, if they need help? How much is enough? How much affirmation of others? How much street cred do you need? How much of others looking up to you? Because you see, the problem is that when you work tirelessly to accomplish something, you have to keep working to maintain it. You'll never arrive. It's literally the carrot dangling out in front of you by somebody on your back holding a stick, and you can never quite reach it, no matter how far you run, how hard you walk after it. The problem isn't what you're looking for, friends, it's where. Because you see, when we place our faith in Jesus instead of ourselves or our reputation, what, has be- what was true of Him becomes true of us. The Bible calls that union with Christ. That when we place our faith in Jesus, we are united to him. So what, become, what was true of him, what is true of him, becomes true of us. That means that before God, we have his reputation of perfection. We have his affirmation that he received of being beloved by the Father. We have his, the declaration that was made over him that he is in the right through the resurrection of Jesus. And and some of you are thinking, that is hard to believe, Rick. I know, I know it is. But this is what frees you to rejoice. This is why Paul can rejoice. This is why he can say, uh, no matter what's going on, as long as Christ is preached, I rejoice. And then he says literally in the very next thing, it's kind of tagged on in the next verse in most of your Bibles, and I will keep rejoicing. Paul can rejoice that Jesus is being preached because Jesus is what matters. Paul is not using his ministry, he's not using his job, he's not using his relationships, he's not using any of these things to gain a reputation. Because he has been given everything in Christ. Listen to me. Because he has been given everything in Christ, he can give everything for Christ. He doesn't have to hang on to it. That is why the gospel can advance through bad circumstances and through bad motivations. Because the gospel isn't about us, and it's not about our circumstances. It is about God. It's about what he has done in Jesus to redeem us. To redeem us from our circumstances, even to redeem those circumstances. And to rescue us from our broken motivations. You can be free to rejoice in these things. 
if at the end of the day, because of the work of Christ in your life, you've recognized that it's really all about him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do ask for your, your grace to touch us. Uh, because as many of us here, even today, our circumstances in our lives are jacked. We don't know what to do about it. Others of us, maybe it's the same. Our motivations are jacked. Like We, we want to do good for folks. We want to help people. We want to see people come to know Jesus. But a lot of times we go, am I really, do I have the right motivations? Is this really about God or is this about me? Is this really about them or is this about me? And the truth is, Lord, that uh, we will never have a pure motive until Christ has returned and made us new. And the truth is, is that you love to work through the most broken of circumstances. Because that tends to be the places where you get the most glory and put your glory on display for the world. Give us the grace to see that. Give us the grace to delight in that, to rejoice. Give us the grace to rejoice that every time we see Christ exalted and his kingdom grown, whether that's in this church or in some other church around us that is preaching the gospel, to delight in that, to rejoice in that. And give us the grace to know that you have declared everything to be true of us that needs to be. And so we don't, it, it no longer matters what others think or the reputation we carry. Help us to believe these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.